Hey, let's, uh, let's finish out the Habakkuk, not Habakkuk, the Habakkuk series here this week. How's that sound? So we've been in it for the past two weeks. We're going to finish it out this week. Um, let me pray them. <clears throat> Lord, I do thank you for tonight. And it was just um, in song an honor to worship you. Lord, we count it a privilege that we get to freely do that, Lord. And that I thank you that we're not forced into it by you, Lord, that we don't have to do anything to earn the right to worship you, Lord. It's an honor. And Lord, I pray tonight that as we study your word and that Holy Spirit, as you work in us and through us, that we would consider this a, a blessed time to worship as well. Lord, we, uh, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is living and active. Lord, I pray that it would be your word spoken tonight. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I'm, I'm battling a little bit of an illness, so if I pass out from the heat of the light, just push, bring me off to the side. Prayer team, come up here, hit me up. Worship team, continue on. How's that sound? We'll just act as if nothing has happened. Um, but no, in the first week of Habakkuk, we really got a pretty good overview of the book of Habakkuk and kind of this, this wrestling match, so to speak, this verbal wrestling match that Habakkuk had with God, right? And in it, we really did get to see the character of God. Um, and in it, we also, I think we were able to see that we were not only given permission to come before him with questions and to lament, but I think it also gave us guidance in how to do that, which we took a look at last week. <clears throat> and so, um, yeah, the first two weeks, we really took a look at the first two chapters. So this week, we're really honing in on chapter three. And so it is appropriate that we only have, uh, this is only a three-part series because there's only three chapters. Anything else would be wrong. So, um, Let's jump into Habakkuk 3. Actually, we're going to start at chapter 2, verse 20 there at the end. So open up your Bibles, if you like, your phones, to follow along with me. So again, we'll start Habakkuk 2, verse 20. So just to set it up, God has given his answer to Habakkuk's second complaint, which we'll actually get into again because I think it bears repeating um, and in verse 20 here it says, Habakkuk says, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. <clears throat> or that's the Lord speaking it to Habakkuk, right? Which is, I think is significant. Then it goes on to say in verse one, a prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet on a shiggy which is some sort of musical term. Maybe it was an instrument that he was using. It says, Lord, I've heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, Lord. Renew them in our day, in our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy, which we talked actually a lot about that in the first week where we see God's judgment, but in it there's great mercy. And so we see Habakkuk kind of repeating that message. I want to skip ahead all the way to 13 for time's sake, but essentially what Habakkuk is doing is recounting God's faithfulness in the history of the Israelite people. And I want to pick up in verse 13 where it says, you came out to deliver your people, to save your anointed one. So again, God's chosen people, him specifically speaking, he's, he's speaking specifically to the kingdom of Judah, but all of the Israelite nation. You crushed the leader of the land of wickedness. You stripped him from head to foot. With his own spear, you pierced his head. When his warriors stormed out to scatter us, gloating as though about to devour the wretched the wretched who were in hiding. You trampled the sea with your horses, churning the great waters. Then I love this here, verse 16. He says, I heard and my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. 
decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. So there's fear, there's awe. Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. Remember, the Babylonian empire is coming to crush them, to take them into exile. Though the fig tree, so this is speaking of what is to happen to the kingdom of Judah. Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in my God, my Savior. So not in those things that he just stated that are now empty, but here's where I put my joy. The sovereign Lord is my strength. Again, not these things that he just stated. The, the, the joy of the Lord is his strength. And he makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights for the director of music on my string instruments. I think there's a very powerful message that we're going to really focus in on two verses here. And I think there's a very powerful message that we can glean from these two verses Really, three verses, starting in 16, but 17, 18, actually four, and 19 is where we're really going to kind of set up camp. But in this, the first principle that I want to talk about is that when we're weak or worried is when we worship. So it's pretty easy to remember, all W's. When we're weak or worried, we worship. And so what empowers, again, if we look at what Habakkuk says, right, it's crazy to think about where we've gone from chapter 1 to where we are in chapter three, where he is coming bitter with God and complaints and coming before him in a very real and raw and authentic way. And we see here at the end, he takes this 180 where he says, yet I will rejoice in the Lord, knowing what's gonna happen to God's chosen people, the kingdom of Judah, those that he's leading in a spiritual way, he knows what's gonna happen. He says, yet I will be joyful in God my savior, the sovereign Lord is my strength. So my question is, is what empowers and encourages Habakkuk to worship? So I think if we were to take a look at what happens here and then what also, what happens previously, I think we have a good idea of what it is that enables and empowers Habakkuk to come to this point of worshiping. Not worrying, not recognizing the weakness, not recognizing that they're gonna be overcome by the Babylonian empire, but that he is to worship. And so if you think about everything that was stated pretty much in chapter 3 is that he recounted God's faithfulness. He had a moment of reflection and remembrance. And I know I've talked about this a handful of times up, up here before, but this is a discipline that we need to learn to tackle on a consistent basis. We fail to remember the faithfulness of God. And I believe when we are disciplined in that, it only increases our faith. And it only leads us to a greater opportunity to realize, man, we have this awesome God that we serve that we should be worshiping. And so as opposed to worrying, recognizing our weakness, it can lead us to worship. And so I just want to make this very tangible, very simple. I think there's two practical things that I want to encourage you to do as it pertains to recounting God's faithfulness. Is one, just once a week. I, I try to do this as much as I can. At the end of my week, I have a phone. My, my, my alarm goes off my phone at 10.10. It doesn't have to be that time. But something like this could be very beneficial, advantageous as it pertains to worshiping and reflecting on God's faithfulness. At 10.10, I do that because of John 10.10. He came to give us life and life to the full. It's to remind me that I want to recount God's faithfulness over this past week. 
And so what will that look like for you? It doesn't need to be that exactly. But I encourage you to be disciplined in that way. That once a week, it can obviously be more often. It doesn't have to be once a week. But on a consistent basis, come before the Lord, asking him to remind you everything that he did in you and through you and around you, the ways that he was faithful. And I encourage you also, I think oftentimes we think the spiritual disciplines need to be done by ourselves. It's an, it's a, it's an individualistic thing, just a personal thing between you and God. But really when you look at the scripture, when you look at the gospel accounts, the church was doing it in community. And I want to encourage you to recount God's faithfulness in community. So if you're part of a home group, do this once a month in your home group where you do it collectively as a group, or maybe you break up into smaller groups. And I want you to, I, here's where I really want you to spend your focus on this in community. Recount God's faithfulness in moments when life was hard, when it doesn't make sense. This is what we see Habakkuk doing, knowing what, is, what already has happened to the kingdom of Israel, the, the 10 northern tribes, what is about to happen to the kingdom of Judah, the two southern tribes, he still worships. He recount, and it's because, I believe, he's able to recount God's faithfulness and all that he has done in and through and around God's chosen people. So I want to encourage you to tackle those two simple pr- principles. And number two, I think the other thing that he did, or th- another thing that was very powerful, um, which is the second principle here, is to knowing the hope and victory that comes in Jesus Christ and through Jesus Christ. Knowing the hope and victory that comes through Jesus Christ. Again, this bears repeating. We see this take place in the first two chapters, right? Remember, Habakkuk first comes to God complaining about what, what is he going to do about his chosen people, the kingdom of Judah, because there's not a threat of decency among them. They don't understand justice, mercy, love, walking humbly with their God. They don't understand that at all. And all this injustice is taking place amongst their own people. They're treating each other that way. He's like, what are you going to do about this? He says, I will discipline them. And I'm going to raise up the Babylonian empire to judge them, is essentially what he says. So then Habakkuk then again comes to God again saying, whoa, 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 wait, wait a second, wait a second. It seems as if the cure is worse than the condition, right? It's, why would you do that? It's, it's worse than the condition. And in that, he asks the question, what are you going to do about the wider evil in the world? And he says this in Habakkuk 1, why do you tolerate it? So what are you going to do about the wider evil? Why do you tolerate it? And so then God addresses that complaint. He doesn't get mad at him. He doesn't get frustrated at him. He actually welcomes these questions that Habakkuk has. He welcomes his, 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 his whys. Where, where are you at? What are you going to do about it? His lamenting. And he meets him there. And he answers it with these powerful statements, which I want to repeat, which again I think is bare repeating. So in chapter 2, verse 1 again Habakkuk says, I will stand in my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me. So what God is going to say to this complaint. Take note of this. The Lord replied, hey, I want you to write this down. Write this revelation down. Put this on a tablet. I want this to be permanent, right? And so that a herald may run with this. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks to the end. And I don't think I talked about this in uh, the first week. Uh, the, the word end here, the Hebrew word, there's actually a few ways that they could have, in Hebrew, uh, communicated the word end. End here, how it's translated, is the end of time, which is important to note. 
which we'll get into this a little bit later. So it speaks to the end. It will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come. It will not delay. So he's telling Habakkuk, for generations to come, I want them to know this message about evil, sin, death, depravity. Because again, he's asking, why, why do you tolerate it? What are you going to do about the wider evil? So he's saying, write this down. I want the people of Israel to know this, but every generation to come, because evil is always going to be confronted with the people that live in this world, whether it's your own raw doings or the injustice in the world. And he goes to the woes. Remember the woes? Let's check them out again. Verse six, it says, woe to him who piles up stolen goods and make himself wealthy by extortion. This is the person who abuses power to accumulate wealth. He says, it will be stopped. Remember, woe refers to something will come to an end. This horrible thing is coming to an end. So he says, it will be stopped. Verse nine, let's check out this woe. Woe to him who builds his house on unjust gain. This is the person who wants to build a power base and will do anything to achieve it. He says, this will be stopped. Verse 12 says, woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed. This is the person who counts human of little valuable, a value, a disposable object in their way. It will be stopped. Verse 15, woe to him who gives drink to his neighbors, pouring it from the wineskins till they are drunk so that he can gaze on their naked bodies. This is the person who's the abuser of drugs to abuse women and children, the rapist and the pornographer. It will be stopped. And finally, he says, woe to him who says to wood, come to life or to lifeless stone, wake up. Again, this is the person who's deeply entrenched in idol worship. To us, this is the person who elevates people, places, and things, and even themselves above God. He says, woe to this, it will be stopped. So here we see God communicating how he will deal with evil, and it's with finality. It's an emphatic, it's it's an emphatic statement from God saying, I don't tolerate it. It will be stopped. There is an end that is coming. And again, the dimensions of evil that will be brought to the end. And what we see in this alone is that we see financial corruption, political corruption, cheapening and devaluing of human life, oppression, satanic seduction in the sexual realm, idolatry in which man is placed on the center and up high on a throne. And sandwiched between all of these thrones, again, remember this, this is significant. In verse 14, it says, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of glory of the Lord. So all of this is going to be substituted with this. And when we look at his contemporary writings in Isaiah, in Isaiah 11, we see, about, we see Isaiah speaking about the messianic kingdom, meaning Jesus' return at the end when he comes back. It's speaking about that. At the end of that, the, um, Isaiah literally uses these same words that we see in 14, which helps us understand that this is not just about the end of the Babylonian empire, because again, there's going to continue to be evil, depravity, sin, destruction, i.e., Rome in a few hundred years. So it's going to happen again. What he wants everyone to know is this evil will be stopped. But here's what's really significant. If we rewind a little, a little bit in the text, in verse 4 in chapter 2, he says what we see more, I think, infamous, or where we see it more well-known, where we see it more spoken from is in Romans 1.17 where it says the righteous will live by their faith. So 600 years previously to Jesus Christ, God is saying the gospel Jesus Christ, the just will live by their faith. We see the gospel found in Habakkuk. Isn't this incredible? That this is the answer to the wider evil in the world. The just will live by their faith. There is a finality 
an emphatic statement saying, I will not tolerate this. And that judgment that you and I deserved, if your faith is in Jesus Christ, is pinned to the cross. And you are now seen justified. You are now seen as righteous. Praise the Lord for that. And this, I believe, is the second reason why Habakkuk is so easily able to worship in moments of worry and weakness and fear. Is that he recounted the faithfulness of God, but he realized, so he recounted all that he has done, but he's looking forward and saying, wow, this is what he will do. Should, not, should that not bring us to a place of worship? No matter what situation we are in, we oftentimes hear Chris Old say, preach the gospel to yourself. This is what God's saying to Habakkuk. There is the good news. And in moments when it's hard, when there's moments where it deserves lamenting, look to the gospel. Look to what it is that Jesus has done on the cross. What will happen with the messianic kingdom. Look at all that I have done. And so here's my encouragement. Here's a very tangible application. Here's one thing that I like to do to remind me of this thing specifically. Of not just what Jesus done on the cross, but what will happen during the messianic kingdom when Christ returned. Is during the time of communion... I love to go there and to worship him and what, he did, what it is he did on the cross, but what he will do when he returns. I love thinking about that and worshiping him, knowing that there is an end to sin and evil and depravity. May I encourage you to do the same thing? Two very simple, practical applications that I think we can live out. Reflect on his goodness, but remind yourself of the gospel and what he will do with the messianic kingdom. So why worship when we are weak or worried? I want to talk about something that I don't think I've heard talked about a whole lot when we face these moments of weakness or worry is that I believe oftentimes, I've seen in my life time and time again, I think you would resonate with this, that I actually see it leading to a time of idolatry in my life because I become so consumed by what, what it is in front of me, the injustice, the evil, the hard thing, the hardship, Whatever it is, I become so worried or weakened by it that that actually becomes my God. Think about it. Your, your thought, your, your emotion, your time spent, your resources are devoted too often to that thing. Where that actually becomes your idol. That's, 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 that, that's idolatry, right? Get, putting anything above God in your time, resources, thought, that's what we do when worry and, and, and weakness hits us, I think, way too often. So the problem of idolatry is misplaced trust. Our hearts trust something or someone that cannot bear the weight of our hearts. Because at some point, that person, that object, or that thing fails us every single time. My, my misplaced trust has always failed me, whether it's someone else, the hard work that I try to put in to try to get out of that tough situation, turning to worldly things just to distract me from that hard moment, whatever it may be, that thing always or that person always fails me in the end. So I believe God wants to discipline ourselves to worship to help us realize where God needs to sit amongst these other gods that we have placed in our life. This happens when we reflect on and worship God for, again, who he is, what he's done, and what he will do. 
Again, we talked about this last week a little bit. I think we're very familiar with Philippians 4, 6 through 9, where it says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition, present your request to God so that this God of peace can guard your heart, right? And then what I think what we miss after that, what it says is, okay, forget about all those things in front of you, this anxiety, this fear, this worry, this, this weakness. He says, think about such things. Those things are Jesus Christ. Those things are the kingdom of heaven. Let's worship him in our moments of anxiety and weakness and worry. Matthew 6.33, I'm sure we're familiar with this, this passage where it talks all about worry, right? What's 6.33? Someone hit me up. Someone knows it, I know it. I heard it back. Yeah, that, man, that's two weeks in a row, man. Bonus points for Kyle Atwood. Extra jewel in your crown, man. Um, no, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added unto you. The kingdom of God, what is the kingdom of God? How do we define that? If I, I have tried to define this to my kids and I think it's made sense to them, but when I define it simply to my kids, it's where God reigns, where he is in charge, right? Simply put, it's where God reigns, right? And so if, if, if we think about the kingdom of God in that way, it's important to know that there's a king that is in charge. And so for us to truly understand what it looks like to seek first the kingdom of God, we got to understand who the king is. He is in charge. And so I believe when we look at this chapter about worry and it says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you, I think it's easy to first go to what it is that God wants us to do. How does he wants us to live our life? How do we live this righteous life? And while I believe that to be true, I think we miss the biggest part. And that is the king who reigns in the kingdom of God. And so may our eyes and our focus, our attention go to him. When there is great worry, when we feel weak in our life, may we seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. So again, may our hearts and our eyes and our ears turn to God. I want to look at this last principle in these few verses we see in Habakkuk. Again, I want to read verses 16 through 19 here. So turn to Habakkuk 3 again. Sixteen, it says, I heard and my heart pounded, my lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept in my, to my bones and my legs trembled. Here's the key word, yet. It's not, I'm not, I'm not going to worry. I'm not going to feel weakened by this, but I will wait patiently for the day of calamity. Isn't that crazy? To come on the nation invading this. Though the fig tree does not bud and though, no, though there are no grapes on the vine, though the olive crop fails, fields produce no food, no sheep in the pen, no cattle in the stalls, again, yet. I will rejoice in the Lord and will be joyful in my God, my Savior. He recognizes that he is Savior, again, because of what he stated in Habakkuk 2. And so we see this word yet, which I think is significant. And I think in this, we see this principle of willing versus wanting. Willing versus wanting. And I believe um, this, having, a, having this perspective comes from an eternal gospel-driven perspective that we see Habakkuk have. The reality is, is in my life, I'll speak, to, I'll speak to myself personally, as it pertains to engaging in the work of the kingdom and in disciplines as far as, as far as connecting with my Lord and Savior, man, most times I don't really want to. I don't really want to. But we need to have a willingness to do so. Here with I believe with Habakkuk, 
everything that's going on, I don't know if he wants to necessarily worship, yet he is willing. How often is this mindset true of you? Where you think, well, I don't necessarily want it, so therefore I just may not do it. Or it feels inauthentic. Or fill in the blank. I believe we need to be on our hands and knees asking the Lord that we have a willing heart, that we are at least willing to engage in what it is that he's asking us to be a part of. I want to, this is not an, by the way, this is not an isolated, isolated mindset. It's, it's, this is a theme we see in scripture from Genesis to the end. Of people who are not always wanting, but are willing. And I want to take a look at three other examples to challenge us with this concept of having a willing heart, and not, even if we are not wanting. So let's first take a look at, I know we know this well, Jonah. You can turn with me to Jonah if you want. I'm going to highlight a few verses in Jonah. Chapter 1. I'm going to start here. It says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh, which is the capital of, the, of Assyria. So the Assyrian Empire took over the northern tribes, right? And so go to this evil nation, right? And preach against it because its wickedness has come before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. If we jump ahead to chapter 4, we actually see why he doesn't want to go there. It's interesting. Actually, uh, yeah, verse verse 1 in chapter 4. It says, But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. And we'll see what that is here soon. And he became angry. He prayed to the Lord. Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is, that, that, is, that is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. So he knew that if he went to this, the, the, the Ninevites and told them to repent, that what they're doing is wrong, he knew that God was going to be gracious and compassionate to them. He did not want this evil empire, so to speak, to encounter and engage with a God that is truly patient and compassionate. Isn't that crazy? But we see here in chapter 3, Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, he did get thrown into a fish, right? Which I think could compel us to do so, but he still had a willing heart. He was still at least willing. He did not want to. He was willing. And we look at verse 10 in chapter 3. It says, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them destruction he had threatened. Jonah would have missed out on that incredible moment if he was not willing. He didn't want to, but he was willing. Let's take a look at Acts. The story of Paul's conversion and Ananias. Chapter 9 in Acts. We're going to read verses 1 and 2 and then jump ahead to uh, verse 10 in chapter 9 again. It says, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He just gave the approval of Stephen's death, right? And he went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Jump down to uh, verse 10. So in Damascus, 
there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision. Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judah, Judas on Straight, Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Paul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on me to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your people in Jerusalem. So he is fully aware of what could happen, of what has happened to his people and what could happen to him. And he has come here with the authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. So again, I don't believe he wanted to. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the, to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. He placed his hands on him and we know the rest of the story. The scales come off of his eyes. He's baptized. He gives his life over to Jesus Christ. Imagine again what Ananias would have missed out on if he was not willing. He wasn't wanting. There was worry. There was anxiety. And I'm guessing there was fear, but he was willing. Let's take a look at the last example, Jesus Christ. Matthew 26. Starting in verse 36. Familiar passage to most, if not all. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him and began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he turned to his disciples and found them sleeping couldn't you men keep watch for me for one hour, he asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. For the spirit is willing, but the flesh is so weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed a third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, are you still asleep and resting? Look, the hour is near and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of the sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. It is quite obvious that the Lord was not, that Jesus Christ was not wanting. He said, the, the spirit is willing, but man, my flesh is so weak. He says, but not my will, but yours be done. And we know from John 10 that Jesus was not forced into this decision. Jesus, in fact, says, hey, this is my choice. I laid down my life on my own accord, and I raise it up again. And so he was not forced into this by God the Father. But in obedience, in his willingness, he followed through what the Lord was asking him to do. He was not wanting. He was willing. I think oftentimes of moments... I would say most times of moments of worry and weakness, fear, anxiety, hurt, pain, moments where we're lamenting, we do not want to worship. But are you willing? And may that translate to how you live the rest of your life 
and being a follower of Jesus Christ. Christine, Kimball, you can come on up. Praise the Lord that we have a high priest who's able to sympathize with our weaknesses. Amen to that. And I want to encourage you in these moments when you don't want to, come before the high priest. And in his grace and in his mercy, I believe he will give you a willing heart. He's not necessarily looking for a want to, but I believe he's looking for a willing heart. And when we say yes, when we are willing, I believe God does a number in our heart when we begin to engage in whatever it is that he has called us to engage with. But also, I believe when we have these opportunities where we say, yes, I am willing, I believe we get to experience something where otherwise we would have missed out on. But again, my final exhortation to you all is that when we are facing worry and weakness, may we be worshipers of him. May we again remember that he is a God who is faithful to what it is he has promised. Let's remember who he is, what he has done, and what he will do. Amen to that? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you again for your faithfulness. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you for how that is portrayed in so many ways, but we ultimately thank you for how that was portrayed on the cross. Lord, we want to be worshipers of you. And Lord, I just ask that when we face these worries, when we feel weak, Lord, that we will be willing to come to you and worship. Lord, I pray that you would flood our memories of all of the great things that you have done in our life. Lord, even though you, you give and take away, Lord, may we take the posture that we see Job says, blessed be your name. Lord, give us that heart. Give us a willing heart to engage in you, to engage with you, to be a part of your kingdom and its work. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.